When I'm having a good hair day, that's when I'm my best self. I feel good. I look great. And I will say, painting sulfate-free rose water collection is a part of that. The Rose Water Collection. It feels and smells amazing and comes with a deep treatment that leaves your hair petal soft. It was inspired by Ramadan traditions when many in the Middle East break the fast with rose water because of its hydrating benefits. And the collection is free of sulfates, parabens, dyes, and mineral oil. So experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. Dear Young Rocker is more than just a podcast about music. It's a memoir of how it feels to survive high school when you don't fit in and the freeing feeling of picking up a guitar for the first time. It's also advice for anyone who is or was young and has ever felt weird or alone. Dear Young Rocker is written and narrated by me, Chelsea Erson, executive produced by Jake Brennan, and comes to you from Double Elvis Productions. Listen to Dear Young Rocker on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Emily. And this is Bridget. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. Today we are so excited to be joined virtually by one of my favorite authors, Jill Filipovich, who's tuning in with us from Nairobi, Kenya to talk through what it means to have slash is it possible that there is such a thing as a feminist marriage? So Jill, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So Bridge and I have some wildly different experiences that we're bringing to the table on this one, uh, in case our listeners didn't already preempt that. Some of you might have seen on Instagram at the start of the year that Brad the Boo and I have decided to hop into the institution of marriage later this year, uh, a decision that didn't we didn't come to very easily or quickly by any means, especially as I wrestled with this topic from a feminist perspective, page by page, right along with you, Jill. Uh, and I want to start by asking what caused you to initially set out to write this book and explore that intersection of feminism and marriage in your amazing book called The H-Spot, The Feminist Pursuit of Happiness. Well, I had been writing about feminism for a long time, mostly on the internet, but for a variety of magazines and newspapers and kind of kept hitting up this, hitting up against the same issues over and over again. And obviously, you know, I'm a feminist. I believe in equality. That seems like an important goal for the feminist movement, but it became pretty clear eventually that what seemed to be holding women back on a broader scale wasn't necessarily that women weren't equal to men, um, you know, which of course is, is still not true. We still are not quite equal yet, but that the world was set up in a way to make men's lives easier according to sort of men's preferences and lifestyles. And, you know, I think we see this everywhere from our workplaces to our laws and our policies and our debates over basic things like reproductive freedom. Um, and so to me, the question then sort of became, okay, well, a feminist shouldn't be looking for equality. Then what should we be looking for? And, uh, you know, the answer, I think, was a world that was, you know, that is built taking into account what it is that women want. And, you know, what do women want? I think it's what most people want, which is a happy and contented life. Um, and so the book was looking at what it would look like 
if we begin to structure our universe around that goal instead of just trying to become equal to men. Um, and marriage, obviously, is kind of one of the institutions that I, I found it fruitful to look at through that lens. So I'm curious. I find that so interesting. What would that look like? What would it look like if we structured marriage and all these other social constructs around what women want and what makes women happy? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that's challenging is kind of inventing a universe that doesn't yet exist, right? <laughs> so that was, the, that was the hardest part of the book. Um, and looking at marriage, I mean, there are a few things that I was sort of fascinated to find in the research. Um, you know, one is that women who are married tend to be happier than women who aren't, um, which was a little bit surprising to me, but you know, it's sort of explained by one of two things. You know, one of them is perhaps people that are happier are more likely to get married in the first place. So maybe the causation goes in the other direction. Um, and then the, just being socially connected makes us happy. And so people that, you know, are, are partnered, um, tend to have a greater, uh, social universe and that contributes quite a bit to their well-being. Um, you know, that said, women who get married later and so, you know, have more dating experience, um, tend to have more financial resources, uh, are a little bit, you know, more independent for a variety of reasons. Those women tend to have longer lasting marriages and better marriages and more feminist marriages. Um, women who continue working after they have kids tend to be happier than those who don't. So, you know, while marriage is this fairly traditional, not particularly in my opinion, feminist institution, the sort of feministization of marriage has made people in marriages happier, which I, I found really fascinating. That is really fascinating. And I think it's important for our listeners and all of us here today to separate out marriage from wedding, <laughs> right? Because we could, you're two weeks out from your wedding in Nairobi. So clearly you've got on board uh, with the institution uh, as a strident feminist that you are. And you know, today's conversation, just for all of our Sminty listeners who've been uh, chatting with me on Instagram about doing an episode around this when Brad the Boo and I announced our engagement, yes, I would love to do a whole series unpacking uh, weddings and the wedding industrial complex and feminism and marriage in so many ways if I had more time, quite frankly, which we'll talk a little bit more about in the episodes that follow. But today's conversation is really about the institution and whether or not the institution of marriage itself can be feminist. There's a quote in your book, Jill, in a chapter that you call Wife, that I found so profound or sort of so, it spoke straight to my experience as someone who, like you, had pretty much accepted the idea that being single is not a bad thing. And that's not what we're trying to say either, right? Despite the the research around happiness and marriage, that doesn't mean that being single resigns you to a, a life of, of dissatisfaction, right? And I don't know about you, Bridget, if your uh, thoughts on this, if you want to chime in with the uh, your perspective here? Yeah, as a non-engaged, non-married person, um, I think it's an interesting conversation. You may have gleaned that I have ambivalent feelings around marriage. I'm not super excited about the idea of marriage. I've never sort of thought of myself as someone who was like very, very, very happy to be married and wanted to be a wife badly. And I think it's one of those things where in popular culture, we're told that women who don't get married are spinsters or sad or this or that. And I think 
why Jill's work is so interesting is that it can present a different model for what marriage can be instead of this binary that like, oh, cool girls don't want to get married. And if you get married, you're so basic and this and that. You're not really a feminist. I think Jill's work really opens up a, a space where we can, you know, not fall along those binaries. Well, that's exactly what this quote from her chapter wife is all about. So if you'll indulge me, Jill, I'd love to read just a couple paragraphs here for a second. You wrote, quote, I had settled comfortably into my identity as a single woman and all the freedom and room for folly it brings with it. Would getting married obscure this person, an individual who defines herself in large part by her autonomy and self-sovereignty? It's with this frame that I entered this project, wondering whether marriage actually makes women happy or if by its nature it subsumes women into their male partners and whether any of that changed when we expanded marriage to include same-sex couples. Can marriage ever be good for women? And can marriage be feminist? And I think that's the question, right? That's really the question at hand. What is the space between that binary that Bridget was talking about that you sort of found in writing this book, Jill? Yeah, so I mean, I think what Bridget raises is a really interesting and important point. Um, Yes, we have these kind of large-scale studies on marriage and happiness, but obviously there's quite a bit of individual variability within those numbers, right? And, you know, one thing that folks who have researched, who have done longevity studies, so looked at um, a particular group of people and kind of what brought them satisfaction throughout the course of their lives, women who led unconventional and interesting lives, you know, who didn't decide to kind of go along with the norms of their time, were also some of the most content and the happiest toward the end of their lives. Um, so there isn't kind of one, you know, one size fits all model. And I think feminism has done a really incredible job of opening up, you know, the sort of universe of opportunities for women. You know, that said, the sort of question I posed in the book, you know, can marriage be feminist? Are are we living in an era where marriages are feminist? I think that we are slowly getting there. Um, but I really don't think we are there yet. I don't think most marriages are feminists. I don't think marriage in and itself is a feminist institution. Um, you know, I'm entering into it anyway. I also don't really think high heels are feminist, but I wear those. (laughs) (laughs) Like we all have to live our lives and do things that are going to, you know, bring us sort of contentment and satisfaction and happiness, even if they don't completely fall in line with our, you know, political ideals. Um, but I do think really engaging, you know, the questions of why we enter into these institutions and and what these institutions are and how we can shift and change them to be better aligned with our vision for what a good world looks like um, is a really crucial feminist project. So, Jill, I just want to tease out something that you said just a moment ago. So women who live unconventional lives, perhaps dedicated to their craft, their art, their passion, who don't get married, you're saying that they actually also report being happy toward the end of their life. So if I decide to go the route of being the single kooky aunt who travels and writes and lives alone and has a life full of other things that do not include a a spouse, I could be just as happy as my married friends. Is that what you're saying? Definitely. Um, (laughs) Look, if if there was like a recipe for human happiness and if we could all just kind of fit ourselves into it and do it, we would have figured that out a while ago. Um, You know, that unfortunately doesn't exist. But, you know, folks who have a deep sense of self, who have a deep sense of purpose and who follow that in their lives, you know, whatever form that takes, um, they do tend to be people who, who are happier than, you know, folks who kind of just go with the flow. 
I think that's so real because I know so many people that, and, and this speaks to, I think, a good section of your book, so many people that get married because they're sort of finished with dating. They've reached a certain age in their in their life and they're like, I need to, to settle down and I'm done with the dating scene. I'm with someone who is fine. I'm going to marry them. And that seems like exactly what you're talking about. This go with the flow as if dating is musical chairs and the music has stopped. And the one that you're in front of, that's the one that you have to pair up with for life. Yeah. And it does seem like this way of sort of giving in to a cultural shift and just going with the flow and saying, I'm not thinking about what would actually make me happy, and I'm not thinking about what actually would ensure that my life is full of more of what makes me happy. I am doing this because it is a choice I'm making to sort of, you know, yeah. to go with this. Well, Jill, in your book, you write about that exact model of marriage, which is perfectly reasonable and risk-averse in terms of a choice for a lot of people. Um, but it's this idea of, I've gotten to this point in my life, this is who I'm with, they're, they're dependable, they're kind, and you call that the responsible partner marriage model, a perfectly sensible thing, but not quite for you. You went on to write, following that section, quote, I would rather have a string of loves and heartbreaks than marry someone fundamentally decent, but about whom I feel the least bit tepid. Bridget and I may or may not have read that exact quote over uh, one cocktail that we shared <laughs> last night after a long day in the studio as we talked about and sort of wrestled with that concept of Mr. or Ms. Good Enough. And I guess my question for everybody here on the podcast is, how did you decide to get married uh, and know that it wasn't because they were Mr. Good Enough? I, I'm curious, Jill, and then Bridget, about your opinions here. Yeah, I mean, uh, for myself, you know, like I said in the book, I don't think that this responsible marriage model is a bad idea. If what you want is a partnership and a nuclear family and children and, you know, marriage is kind of a vehicle to that, you know, I think that's a perfectly reasonable choice that a lot of women make. Um, that was not appealing for me <laughs> for my life. And I felt, especially as I got into, you know, kind of my late 20s and early 30s, not that there was a lot of social pressure on me to get married, because I, I frankly didn't feel that from either my family or my peer group, but that there did seem to be a pressure to view relationships through the frame of, is this person marriage material? Um you know, am I, and I sort of found myself and, you know, within my group of friends, um, sort of not uh, without intending to using that as a way to evaluate people I was dating. And I, I think it did sort of, you know, short circuit my ability to really just be kind of fully present and there in my dating life, as opposed to thinking, you know, eight steps ahead. Um, so at some point I just totally took marriage off the table and, you know, decided, look, this isn't something I'm that interested in. I doubt I'm going to meet some, you know, the chances that I meet somebody that I actually want to marry are sort of so, so teeny tiny and small, um, that it seems impossible. So I'm going to just not look at men through this lens. Um, <laughs> and instead I will do what seems like it's enjoyable, you know, and, until it's no longer enjoyable and then I'll move on. Um, and that works for a long time. And, you know, uh, the sort of imperfect, not very good dating advice answer is that I got extraordinarily lucky. <laughs> um, and I did happen to meet somebody that, you know, was that kind of once in a lifetime, if you're very lucky kind of connection. Um, and, and that changed my thought process and, you know, but it, it was that specific relationship. It wasn't, you know, hitting a certain point in my life or 
wanting kids or kind of any of those other kind of normal calculuses. What you're saying is that if you had not met your current partner, you wouldn't have just picked somebody because of social pressure, because you wanted to have kids or this or that. You would have continued what you were doing, which is like dating and, you know, having your heart broken and feeling really into people and, you know, going through those those processes and cycles until that didn't feel good anymore. Exactly. I mean, if I hadn't met my current partner, I don't think I probably would have ever gotten married. <laughs> I mean, who knows? Not but. to mention in the book, you describe the fact that he's the one who really expressed that marriage was important to him about a year into your relationship, right? Right, exactly. That's very similar to what happened to me. <laughs> Just out of curiosity, how did he make that case? Because knowing Emily, I know that your book kind of sold her on the idea of marriage. <laughs> so I'm kind of curious, if we, if we follow that thread back, how did your partner sell you on that idea? Yeah, I mean, it was something we talked about for a long time. You know, it was definitely not like a decision that was made overnight. There was no like surprise, you know, proposal. It was it was a very much like very talky um, kind of thing. And, you know, I, I think the way that we sort of eventually came to the decision to do it was this idea that this relationship is really extraordinary, really special, and that we wanted to be family. Um, you know, that he certainly already felt like my family, but marriage is kind of the pathway to formal recognition that we have in the culture that we live in. Um, and that, you know, the relationship felt special enough that we wanted, we wanted it to be sort of socially distinguished from, you know, sort of other girlfriends and boyfriends we had had before. And, you know, again, perhaps marriage is an imperfect vehicle for that. Um, but it's what we have. <laughs> and, you know, the idea of getting to choose someone to create this deep lifelong commitment with. Um, you know, it's totally terrifying, <laughs> but you know, when it's someone who, who you want to kind of take that leap with, um, it's also really exciting. And, you know, after several months of talking about it, I, you know, I got to a point where I think we both felt really excited and, and really good about, you know, this exciting challenge. It's so funny how we think of sort of a quote unquote dream engagement as he had a ring and this and that. And it was so such a surprise. What you describe is so much more pragmatic as we had a lot of serious conversations and came to an agreement that felt right for us both. It wasn't, oh, he surprised me at a, at a Red Sox game and in front of everybody. <laughs> yeah, that, that's one of the freakiest parts of the whole marriage tradition that we were not into at all. And Jill, I'm like feverishly nodding over here as I was while reading your book because your experience to, spoke to me in that you didn't have much trepidation about thinking about your life with this person, which is kind of how I felt about Brad the Boo. We just sort of calmly knew that this was a amazing partnership that we wanted to keep leveling up together, you know, keep winning <laughs> life together <laughs> like teammates. And I remember him stating, you know, I, I really don't like it when my friends get married and say, well, it was no big deal. Like, there's nothing changed, nothing different about us now that we're married, because marriage meant something really meaningful to him. And I was like, whoa, what, what do you mean by that? And, you know, that spun out years worth of conversation to the point where I wrestled with the institution, because it does have a pretty patriarchal past, um... And said, okay, can we come up with an alternative? And I think over the course of the last year, I read many books, actually, and had lots of conversations, but yours was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back, because I couldn't come up with a good alternative. Like, we could not 
figure out any other way to demarcate how he felt about this relationship. So like you, I, you know, we're, we're making it our own. We're retrofitting it to work for us. Um, but I want, I want to talk more about the history behind marriage that makes that process feel a little bit <laughs> tortured for a feminist or feel a little challenging for a feminist when we come right back after this quick break. Okay. So a recent study found that a great hair day makes you happier and more confident. But that same study also revealed that 95% of women don't feel great about their hair. I can definitely relate to the confidence part because if my hair is doing something a little weird, something I don't want it to do, then I, I can't stop thinking about it the rest of the day. Oh my God, we've all been there. Pantene's Rosewater Collection feels and smells amazing and comes with a deep treatment that leaves your hair petal soft. It was inspired by Ramadan traditions when many in the Middle East break the fast with rosewater because of its hydrating benefits. And the collection is free of sulfates, parabens, dyes, and mineral oil. Your hair doesn't look really great. Thank you. I actually worked in a place for a while that was very sensitive environmentally, and we weren't allowed to use shampoos that had sulfate in them, so that's something that I look for these days. And bonus, I love the way that my hair looks now. So experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. This episode is brought to you by NBC's Good Girls. Okay, the new season of NBC's Good Girls is generating serious buzz. Christina Hendricks, Retta, and Mae Whitman have never been more hilarious as America's favorite moms turned gangsters, Beth, Ruby, and Annie. Already this season, there have been some big twists and breathtaking surprises. The fans love it, and the critics do, too. Variety calls good girls addictive and audacious. Entertainment Weekly says it's just what you need, and Rotten Tomatoes certifies good girls 100% fresh. So, if you've missed any of the new season, get yourself online and stream it now. And Sundays on NBC, watch it live. There's sure to be big twists and huge surprises. So you'll want to enjoy your Good Girls experience in a spoiler-free zone. The all-new, all-hilarious season of Good Girls, Sundays on NBC and stream anytime. And we are back, and we're talking through the question, can there be such a thing as a feminist marriage? We're certainly hoping so, at least the two of us who are preparing to walk down the aisle this year. Jill, in your book, one of the things I love the most is how much of a history buff you are. The whole concept of the American foundation in those inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness come up time and again as you write about the history of uh, how our country thinks about women and happiness. And as it pertains to marriage, I found it really interesting when you quoted Elizabeth Cady Stanton, a legendary suffragette and overall badass woman of history, who wrote to her friend in 1855, quote, did it ever enter into the mind of a man that a woman too had an inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of her individual happiness? And she proclaimed at that point that the institution of marriage itself was the primary feminist battleground upon which our independence must be fought and won. So how far has marriage as an institution come in terms of pursuing gender equality or getting more egalitarian? Yeah, I mean, it's come incredibly far. There's good reason why marriage was the locus of kind of early feminist ire. Um, when a woman entered into a marriage, she essentially ceased to be an individual person. Um, you know, she became more or less under the cover of a man. So she could 
not own her own property. Um, you know, once, once credit cards existed, which was obviously after, <laughs> after Elizabeth Cady Stanton's time, um, she couldn't get a credit card under her own name when women couldn't open their own bank accounts. Um, marital rape was largely legal. Domestic violence was something that the police kind of looked the other way on. Um, so, you know, as soon as a woman got married, she essentially ceded most of her rights to be a, a, a person. Um, and so that's what a lot of the early feminists were really focused on. And they made, they did incredible work in changing a lot of not just the laws, but also the kind of social norms around marriage. Um, you know, and so today it's, it's illegal to rape your wife. <laughs> Obviously it's illegal to beat your wife. Um, men and women have equal rights, uh, to shared property. Women can have their own bank accounts. Um, you know, a marital status doesn't render you at least legally dependent on your husband. Um, so we have made great strides. You know, that said, I don't think we are yet to a place where marriage is truly egalitarian or where most marriages are egalitarian. Um, you know, within, and I think this gets exacerbated when you have kids, but, you know, for most women who are married or partnered, it is women who still end up doing more work around the house. It is women who take on more of, you know, the kind of both physical and psychological labor of running a household. And, you know, those things are, they're harder to change. You can't legislate that. That, that has to come from kind of profound cultural shifts about what we think men are and, and what we think women are. Um, and that's a very slow process. Totally. That reminds me so much of one of the role overload episodes we did with Tiffany Dufu. And she talks about how the little ways that within her marriage, they have these almost sort of radical acts where they're helping others outside of their marriage rethink the cultural expectations of who does what. And so one of the examples that she gave in that interview was that when one of her children's classmates has a party or something, they usually call her and to make the arrangements of, you know, is your kid going to come? And she'll say, actually, my husband, he's in charge of the social schedule of our kids. Please talk to him. And that even though that seems like a really small thing, that even just sort of punting the question and saying the proper person to talk to is actually my husband, not me because I'm the woman, yeah. actually helps people rethink. And they go, oh, they have they have really built these models for what works for them within their marriage, not along what culture and society say should be, you know, the man's job, the woman's job, et cetera. Yeah. Good luck doing that with wedding vendors, too. Because <laughs> I've, I've heard from women who are like, I cannot get this wedding vendor. This is one, actually one of my best friends who's also getting married this year can't get the wedding vendors she's talking to to CC her fiancé who happens to be a dude. And it's like they can't fathom that a guy could be in charge of any of this labor. And or it's frustrating. Not even just be in charge. Give a crap about it. Yeah. Like the, the, I think that the, and I know this is not an episode about weddings, but I think the expectation is that men don't care. Yeah. They don't, don't, don't want an active part in this and that you need to talk to the woman because she's the only person who's going to care in a heterosexual pairing. Right. Yeah. I mean, we clearly have room to grow in terms of equality in a marriage. The weird thing is, and you go on to write about this further on in the book, Jill, one of the traditions that troubles me the most, or I think causes a lot of feminist angst amongst my friends, is the question of surnames, last names. You know, I, like you, at one point thought, okay, it's 2018, there must be tons of women who are keeping their name after getting married, or there must be tons of men who are taking on their wives' names, and that is not what you found, isn't that right? 
Right. I mean, there's the overwhelming majority of women do still take their husband's names. Um, it, that number sort of decreased in the nineties and now it's actually been creeping back up. Um, and the number of men who take their wives' names is like so small that researchers don't even really count it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this kind of language around, oh, well, it's a choice. I mean, sure, but it's a choice only women are really faced with. Right. Um, and it's definitely, you know, men overwhelmingly only don't, I mean, don't even think about it. And so they're not having to make the choice. Um, and I, I mean, to me that the sort of like, oh, you know, we can all choose our choices totally <laughs> obscures, you know, history and social pressure and what these norms say about what marriage means for women about you know, versus what it means for men. Um, you know, and I was saying earlier that, you know, 150 years ago, marriage meant totally ceding your identity to a man. Uh, your name is the word for your identity. You know, we know a chair is a chair because we call it a chair. <laughs> um, we know that I'm Jill Filipovich because my name is Jill Filipovich. And uh, the idea that when women marry, that gets obscured, that, you know, you then become, your identity shifts into being a part of your male partner. Um, I mean, to me, is kind of one of the most obvious and sort of troubling incarnations of uh, patriarchal authority out there. And, you know, sort of stunning to, it's always shocking to me um, that, that women do still take their husband's names and that men get, you know, not obviously not the person I'm marrying and not a lot of men that I know, but that, you know, there are a not insignificant number of men who get really bent out of shape about it. If, if their future wife says she doesn't want to take their last name. Yeah. I mean, in your book, you quote men saying like, I would question my wife's commitment to being faithful if she wouldn't take my last name because she might be holding on to this identity of her as a single woman, to which I laughed out loud and also thought this person has deep-seated insecurities and run away (laughs) from marrying that person. I mean, it's a weird issue because there are plenty of self-identified feminists who take on their their husband's name. Um, What what are you planning on doing? I'm planning on keeping my name, my last name, especially in the age of Google, which is another argument that Jill makes in the book. My name is associated with all of my professional accomplishments thus far, and I have no interest in rebranding myself. But I'll give I'll be completely candid here and say Brad has expressed like this invitation. He said, I would love to invite you to become um, part of his family's last name. There's definitely conversations happening about how we can find a way to share in each other's identity. But if I'm adopting his last name into my middle name, perhaps, which is something we're talking about, he's adopting my last name into his middle name. That's what Yoko Ono and John Lennon oh, did. Oh, really? FYI. Um, what's funny is that I had a very early model for this in my life, which is my mother. Uh, many of you know I've talked about her before because she's the best. Uh, she's a doctor, and her professional name is her maiden name. So my mom, in a professional setting, is Dr. Carolyn Boone. In her personal life and other capacities, she's Carolyn Todd. And when I asked her, Mom, why do you have, you know, why are you basically two people? She always says, well, your father didn't have anything to do with me going to medical school. He didn't earn a medical degree. That was me. Did that before I even really knew him. He's not gonna, he's not gonna be Dr. Todd. I'm the doctor, not him. And I loved that because she, it really underscored for me at an early age that her professional accomplishments were linked with her name. And those professional achievements started when she was Carolyn Boone, not when she was Carolyn Todd. And so that, it, it has caused 
some confusion in our in our <laughs> in our world, but she sticks by it, right? I think it's a cool thing to own that identity. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I wonder, Jill, can you shine any more light on a bright spot? I, I, I know one of the uh, most interesting parts of the book is when you featured a couple, Howard and Mary Beth, who you say amongst opposite sex couples, many of whom you like searched for the most egalitarian marriage you could find, that they were sort of it. What did you see Howard and Mary Beth doing in their family to really strive for uh, equality in marriage? Well, I mean, what I saw them doing was being really communicative about who was taking on what. Um, and the thing, the reason that I decided to go and profile Howard and Mary Beth is because Howard is one of the few men, frankly, the only man I could find who had himself scaled back on work when they had kids. Um, you know, it's very easy to find women who, once they have kids, you know, decide they want more balance and take on fewer hours or take on part-time work, um, you know, or go to the 11 millionth panel on women and work-life balance. Um, and it's much harder to find men who even think about those things. I think that that's changing. You know, I think men increasingly say that they do want better balance in their lives. Um, but that has very traditionally been, you know, kind of a women in the workplace issue. And so I was trying to find a couple where they had had children and a man had said, you know what? I want my life to look different than it does. And that was Howard. Um, you know, and he's, uh, in talking to him, you know, it was very funny because he sort of jokes that, you know, he was basically put on the mommy track at work. Um, and he's a consultant and in sort of his, uh, universe at the office, it's all women and him, um, kind of in his department. Um, and that he's, you know, been sort of criticized, not often, but sometimes by colleagues who are kind of like, you know, why are you not trying to climb the corporate ladder? Why are you not trying to make more money? Um, and you know, his take is like, these people are all crazy. <laughs> like I get to go coach my daughter's soccer team on Saturday. You know, I get to make dinner with my wife and kids every night. I get to take the dog for a walk in the morning. Like, that's, that's a life. <laughs> you know, why would I want to be spending that time in the office? You know, even if it was, even if it was in exchange for a little bit more money. Um, you know, that said, Howard and Mary Beth are, you know, upper middle class white collar professionals. And so there's certainly, you know, a lot of privilege inherent to being able to make that choice. Um, that's not a choice that many working class families have on offer. That's such a good point. I want to talk more about class and marriage after this quick break. Okay, so a recent study found that a great hair day makes you happier and more confident. But that same study also revealed that 95% of women don't feel great about their hair. I can definitely relate to the confidence part because if my hair is doing something a little weird, something I don't want it to do, <laughs> then I, I can't stop thinking about it the rest of the day. Oh my God, we've all been there. Pantene's Rosewater Collection feels and smells amazing and comes with a deep treatment that leaves your hair petal soft. It was inspired by Ramadan traditions when many in the Middle East break the fast with rosewater because of its hydrating benefits. And the collection is free of sulfates, parabens, dyes, and mineral oil. Your hair doesn't look really great. Thank you. I actually worked in a place for a while that was very sensitive environmentally, and we weren't allowed to use shampoos that had sulfate in them, so that's something that I look for these days. And bonus, I love the way that my hair looks now. So experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. Here's the thing. 
Saving money with Geico is almost better than playing pickup basketball. Because there's always that guy who joins your game. He never passes the rock, he constantly bricks threes, and he'll completely hack you and then put his hands up and say, no foul, no foul. With GEICO, it's easy to switch and save on car insurance. No need to fake an ankle sprain because you're absolutely exhausted. So switch and save with GEICO. It's almost better than sports. And we're back. Now, Jill, you were just making an excellent point around what marriage looks like along class lines. Can you speak more to that? Sure. So um, one of the things that makes marriages and just sort of life generally more stable is economic stability. Um, so we know that educated couples tend to get married later, tend to have happier marriages and tend to divorce less often. Um, you know, that's not because the educated or the kind of elites are better at marriage. It's because economic stress puts a lot of stress on marriage itself. Um, and so it's something, you know, especially when we're sort of trying to think about in our very politically polarized universe, how we can work across the aisle. I mean, to me, it's sort of a big glaring hole that you don't see the religious right in the United States really pushing for the kind of policies that would enable stable marriages. Um, you know, those policies would be things like increasing the social safety net, um, improving the education system, you know, and essentially giving more couples opportunities both to be financially independent on their own and also to have kind of more fruitful egalitarian partnerships. I mean, that seems to be missing from our political conversation. Isn't that interesting in terms of the strange bedfellows that might be involved in that kind of a platform? Because there's a whole host of hardcore right-wing folks who want to bring back marriage and sort of force marriage upon people as though marriage is the cause behind economic stability. And then, of course, there's a whole bunch of liberals and economists who would say we need to give people a stronger social safety net so that marriages can flourish with less economic anxiety that makes, I don't know, marrying a man who was displaced economically in the Great Recession, who, you know, for whom trucking and logging and all kinds of industries like mining is are no longer pathways to a stable middle class life anymore, for whom, uh, you know, their economic stress becomes a burden on a lot of women who are weighing whether or not to marry this person who might be a financial drain on their families, right? Like it's a weird crossover from very uh, right-wing family values, I put that in air quotes, politicians who want to sort of push marriage and the economists who would say, yeah, but in order for marriages to flourish, we need people to have stronger stability and access to a safe middle-class life. Right. And I mean, we've seen this played out um, many times over, you know, with kind of religious marriage promotion programs that overwhelmingly don't work. Um, and in actually one case made marriages less successful versus, for example, there was a program, I believe in Minnesota, and I want to say it was in the late 90s, um, that essentially would let people keep most of their welfare benefits, even if they got married. So as it stands, a lot of low-income folks who are dependent on welfare don't get married because then you have a combined household income that will put you over, you know, the, the sort of cutoff, um, to receive benefits. So it really disincentivizes marriage. So this program allowed, uh, couples to retain most of their benefits, even if they married. And what they found 
was not only were couples obviously more likely than to get married, but their relationships were more stable. And actually, women ended up being more likely to leave abusive relationships under that program than they were otherwise. And, you know, then, of course, welfare reform ended up gutting it. <laughs> Minnesota got rid of it. Um, and, you know, it was certainly not something that was championed by the right. But, you know, I think that that tells us a lot about what people need as, you know, a kind of basic foundation to grow a stable and happy relationship on. It's also a reminder that personal choice is not the only thing that impacts marriages in this country. Yeah, I think we so often, and Jill, you've alluded to this in this interview and in your book, I think we so often think that these things are just choices and it's all personal and it's just do you whatever you want to do. And we obscure the fact that oftentimes they have very real non-personal grounding, whether it's you know legislation, law, economics. These aren't just personal choices as much as we like to think that they are. Yeah, it's it's easy to forget how much public policy influences marriage. And it's also easy to forget that, you know, the changing choices and constrained choices around marriage don't all fall on women's shoulders either. It seems like there's a lot that men can do uh, in order to help make marriages more egalitarian too. And in fact, there seems to be this sort of tension you allude to throughout the book when you write the feminist marriage revolution is a stalled one. And you say, while most women today exist in a marital landscape that is far preferable to the options of a century ago, they're still in a strange limbo where men's actions haven't totally caught up to women's expectations. What do you mean by that, Jill? Well, there there remains a pretty significant gap um, in who feminism has really influenced. Um, so, for example, there's been uh, several studies out of Harvard Business School looking at what business school students expect their relationships to look like. And, you know, what they find is that men and women, you know, pretty much both say that they expect equal partnerships. But then when there's a follow-up question of, you know, well... <laughs> What if that isn't possible? You know, whose, whose career takes a backseat? Men mostly say, my wife's career takes a backseat. Unsurprising. Takes a front seat. Um, and you know, whereas women are more likely to basically say, well, we'll, we'll, we'll have to figure out some way to work that out. We'll trade off, you know, we'll, we'll do something. And it ends up being men who are right. Um, it is overwhelmingly women's careers that take a backseat even when the couple kind of goes into the marriage intending it to be egalitarian. And those choices, you know, can can feel very personal, and they certainly are, but obviously they're also influenced, you know, both by public policy and also by workplace discrimination. And, you know, the fact that there's a reason that, you know, perhaps 10 years into a marriage, your husband is making more money than you and, you know, holds a higher position um, and you kind of feel like you're treading water. And so it just makes more sense for you to be the one to scale back. I've heard that story so many times from friends who say things like, oh, we have a child now and my job was just paying for childcare. So it just didn't make financial sense for me to keep working. Don't you hate that argument, though? Because and I think you address this directly in your book, Jill, the argument like suspends the potential for any future career of that woman, as though that's the earnings cap on her entire career, not to mention her potential for future promotions or what opportunities she's going to be missing out on by not staying in the workforce or underestimating the very challenging on-ramp back into the workforce. Exactly. I also want to highlight something else from what you just said, Jill, which is this idea that 
I think a lot of men go into marriages thinking, I'm this awesome feminist ally and I'm going to have a equal partnership marriage, blah, blah, blah. But then when you actually look at what that entails, whether it's making a career sacrifice so that your your partner can work or doing more around the house, sometimes they're not actually prepared to take on the actual responsibilities that come along with uh, an equal partnership, whether that's, you know, sacrificing your career for your partners, doing more around the house, whatever that looks like. Oftentimes, I think people can just say they want to have an equal partnership, but not actually have an equal partnership or put the work in to make an equal partnership possible. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of, a lot of men, you know, will say I want an equal partnership. And what they mean is I'm perfectly happy to marry somebody who works outside the home, you know, who, who pulls her own weight, you know, who sort of, she does the work to make herself equal to me. Um, I don't know that there's always a lot of self-reflection on, you know, what do I have to do to make this relationship function, you know, including scaling back at work, you know, including Emily, one thing that you were saying about, uh, childcare, even the idea that childcare expenses are measured against a woman's income <laughs> right, <laughs> and not the whole family's income. Um, you know, it's kind of indicative. I, I mean, I hear that all the time too. Like, you know, daycare is almost as much as I was making. Well, I've never heard a man say daycare was almost as much as I was making. So I quit my job. Um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a family expense and the kids are both of yours. <laughs> so it does seem a little absurd, you know, that even in quote unquote egalitarian marriages, it's still women who are either kind of financially or physically charged with, with taking care of the children. And it also just brings us back to underscore the critical importance of public policy and how our public institutions could eliminate the need for that conversation for a lot of couples. If we had, uh, like every other industrialized nation in the world, any semblance of a federal paid parental leave policy or affordable child care reform in this country, there would be fewer partners, regardless of gender, who are raising children who would be forced into making that kind of a decision. So again, these are choices, but they are constrained choices. I really hope we can see the institution of marriage itself continue to evolve in an egalitarian way with federal support, with, with public policy nudging it along. So Jill, I'm curious, how has same-sex marriage changed how we think about the institution of marriage? How does that enter into this conversation? So I think same-sex marriage, it's still so new that there isn't a lot of great research yet on kind of on same-sex couples and marital happiness and the sort of wealth of, of information we have on opposite-sex couples um, doesn't exist yet for same-sex couples. That said, I do think that the Supreme Court case really reflected, the Supreme Court case uh, legalizing same-sex marriage throughout the, the United States really reflected how much marriage has changed and how much same-sex couples have been really instrumental in pushing that change. Um, the sort of foundation of the argument against same-sex marriage, and you know, brief after brief filed by religious groups, was that marriage must be between a man and a woman because men and women are inherently different and necessarily complementary for a marriage to even be by definition a marriage. You know, that men protect and women are protected, that women nurture and men are nurtured. This kind of opposite view um, of what makes marriage marriage. And the Supreme Court rejected that. And, you know, the Supreme Court is not exactly one of the most, like, feminist institutions on the planet. Um, and what the majority opinion said, you know, was basically that gender roles have changed so much 
that this idea, you know, that marriage must be between a man and a woman because of these kind of opposite characteristics, it's just not true of marriage generally anymore. And, you know, so how can we say that same-sex couples shouldn't be able to partake in it, you know, that that is discrimination. And so that to me is a really powerful moment that both reflects how far we've come and also shows how the LGBT rights movement has really been kind of pushing forward and leading the way on making marriage more egalitarian and better for all of the rest of us. Absolutely. So last question for for everyone here, rapid fire style, what are your hopes for your marriage, Jill, or the institution of marriage more broadly? For the institution, I mean, I hope we keep moving in a feminist direction. I I hope that, you know, the sort of gender of the participants um, increasingly ceases to matter. And I frankly hope that marriage becomes less of a sort of guiding social institution, that we have more options for partnerships and romantic relationships and recognize platonic relationships um, other than marriage, that marriage is no longer the only game in town. I would say I just hope that anybody getting married is doing so because they're really, really excited to be married and that they are super, super happy about it and they are not feeling pressured by anything other than their own internal wants and happiness. Oh, I love that. And I would say I hope we cease to think of marriage as an achievement. I think it's perfectly natural and well-intentioned to congratulate folks for getting engaged and to congratulate folks for getting married. But to misconstrue marriage as some kind of a, like entering the institution of marriage as some crowning achievement, to me, like confuses the hard work that we put in in our careers in some ways. I think maintaining a marriage, like having a 50th wedding anniversary is an achievement. But getting married is not like a crowning achievement. And I, I wish we could change the language around that. Well, thank you so much, Jill, for joining us today. If you haven't already gotten a copy of her book, The H-Spot, The Feminist Pursuit of Happiness, you need to rectify that problem in your life right now and get you some more feminist happiness in your life. In the meantime, Jill is a frequent writer on all kinds of great topics. Jill, where can our listeners keep up with you? So you can follow me on Twitter at at Jill Filipovich. Um, or I have a public Facebook page where I post most of my work, which is facebook.com slash Jill Filipovich page. Awesome. And listeners, we want to hear from you. Have you toyed around with the idea of marriage? Have you entered the institution yourself? Have you, like many of us, sort of intrinsically rebelled against the concept of marriage entirely? We want to hear from you. All your fraught feminist feelings are welcome. So let us know how you felt about today's episode and the idea of a feminist marriage in general on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast, on Instagram at StuffMomNeverToldYou, and as always, our inbox is open at MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com. So here's something that some of you might find shocking. 95% of women don't feel good about their hair. But Pantene is changing that. Pantene's Rosewater Collection combats bad hair days with an innovative formula that uses rosewater derived from the petals and buds of the Rosa Gallica plant. With Pantene's Rosewater Collection, I can really feel how much more hydrated my hair is. And it's sulfate, paraben dye, and mineral oil-free, which makes me feel good because who needs all those additives? Experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. 
This episode is brought to you by NBC's Good Girls. The new season of NBC's Good Girls is generating serious buzz. Christina Hendricks, Retta, and Mae Whitman are hilarious as America's favorite moms turned criminals. This show is the perfect blend of comedy, action, and romance. No wonder critics call Good Girls your next TV addiction. And Rotten Tomatoes rates it 100% fresh. Ooh, Good Girls, Sundays on NBC. The new season has already had some wild twists, so watch live. And stream anytime.